right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Creating Structure podcast. I'm John Wheaton. Thank you for listening. So far, we've had just a tremendous community, tremendous, tremendous audience and uh, building. So thank you for that. It is my pleasure today to host and speak with Dan Winterick, architect and artist. And uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks. Great to see you. Great to see you too. I, Dan, I'm going to ask you, you know, where you're from, what's your background, where you work, but at some point we'll have to fill the audience in a little bit more on our history, right? Yeah, I think so. Quite a history. <laughs> it's uh, pretty incredible that we're speaking to each other um, after 43 years or something. Yeah, 43 years. Let's Let's come back to that, but why don't you tell us where you're from, what's your background, where you work, and uh, where you went to school, all that. Give, give us a, who, who's Dan Winterick? Okay, um, so I grew up in Chesterland, Ohio, and um, went to a University of Cincinnati School of um, Design, Art, Architecture, and Planning, and uh, went there. Um, sort of as a compromise with my dad who was wanting me to go into architecture and me wanting to go into fine arts. Um, so ended up at uh, University of Cincinnati in the design school and um, spent um, six years there, um, five-year program, uh, did a um, apprenticeship in, um, in Germany, which um, involved sort of the work that I did with my family growing up, which is mm -hmm. um, church interior architecture. So my family's business is um, uh, Wintrix and Associates goes back to 1913 with my great grandfather, uh, John Wintrick. And uh, he came over from Germany, started um, a church interior decoration company, basically, that um, furnished most of the uh, interiors of churches in downtown Cleveland and surrounding areas and then eventually in, in the region. Um, so I grew up working in the family studio in the stained glass department. Uh, we had a cabinet making shop. Um, when I first started, we had a, a marble and mosaic department. My dad uh, grew up working as a marble setter. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we had a painting and decorating division. Um, so, you know, anything you could think of um, that's needed for furnishing the church interior, we did in-house at one point. Eventually, um, the shop sort of consolidated and just did uh, the millwork and the stained glass work. Um, so I spent my summers there from the time I was 14. Um, you know, working first in the wood shop, sweeping floors, and then uh, in the stained glass studio, and um, sort of and learn the trade, you know, over the summers. Um, got into, uh, you know, I mean, at a young age, and you're in high school, you're working in a church interior decorating company. What the heck is that? You know, yeah. um, who's ever heard of such a thing? And so, um, course you know it, it it didn't really seem like anything special to me but it was an incredible place of course now to you know reflect on it so we had these artists uh ed sloan and jack eilers who were very much renaissance type artists they could take a like a one inch scale rendering of say a painting of the last supper and um and translate that into like a 24 foot high mural um, that eventually we made in stained glass. And they would do this all by hand, you know? You know, nowadays we've got printing technology that could take care of that for us or even video or, a, you know, like a, like a slide projector. Um, so these, these guys were, were uh, my teachers and they, they sort of taught me you know, how to not only work in stained glass, but how to go about um, solving design problems because we did the church interior design also. Um, so great, I got a great start 
you know, as a kid. And um, at one point, when I was about 16, really fell in love with contemporary German stained glass. Um, there was one book that um, really caught my attention. It's the work of Ludwig Schaffrat. Um, I would, you know, I would, I would spend a lot of time in our library waiting for my dad to finish his work before we drove back home. So came across this book, I still have it here, um, of this very modern approach to stained glass. And I thought, gosh, this is just something like I've never, it's something I've never seen before. And it, it spoke to me for whatever reason. It was partially the, the graphics, but it was also partially the way he described his approach to designing stained glass, which was um, manipulating the light inside the architecture he was trying to render with light. And that, that idea somehow just kind of grabbed me. So, you know, fast forwarding to uh, Cincinnati, my dad wanted me to go into architecture, me fine arts. Um, I was able, because of Cincinnati's work study program, I was able to go work in Germany in their oldest and largest stained glass studio, Oitman Glass Malerei, as a glass painter. Um, and uh, got to spend six months there learning from, you know, the masters how to, how to paint on glass um, and all that's involved with, you know, that, that technique. Then also got to do some uh, window installations in Germany um, in some of the old cathedrals. Um, so, you know, great, unbelievable experience, uh, great teachers. Um, when I came back, um, really thought about dropping out of design school mm -hmm. um, and was talked out of it by the dean and, and another professor um, who um, encouraged me to stick with it and to sort of tailor my program so that I could pursue the things I really wanted to pursue. So I'd, all my electives were painting and drawing basically. So once I graduated from Cincinnati, um, at that point, the family business was going through a transition. Mm -hmm. My dad um, decided to start a competing business because they just couldn't work out a deal um, with my, my uncles. And they both offered me a job when I graduated. So, That's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I said, you know what, I'm going to go to California for a couple of years. You guys sort this out and then um, I'll come back, you mm -hmm. know, and we'll continue the family business. Well, that was, that was in 1984 and, uh, you know, still here. So um, once I arrived here, um, needed to get a job, ran out of money. So got a job with an architect's office, Munsell Brown, and that, that was the beginning of a 10-year journey in architecture for me. Mm -hmm. um, after a couple of years, I decided, you know what? Um, architecture is something that interests me, and it's really, it's the kind of uh, perfect background for the type of architectural art I would like to do eventually. So, um, so 10 years working in architecture um, for three different firms. And um, at that point in, I think it was 1994, I left and then uh, worked for a couple years up in Napa at Architectural Glass Design. And uh, then in 96, started my own studio. Was that an architecture studio or a, a glass studio or both? So it was both. Um, the intent has always been to do, um, you know, art glass in, in um, architectural settings. And, um, but with my architecture background, you know, as I was starting a business, I needed to, you know, feed the family and, you know, feed the business. And so I did some architecture projects and uh, while I was developing, you know, some of the glass projects, uh, which worked out great. Um, over time, all those architects I worked with for 10 years became sort of my agents. Yeah. 
so they brought me in to, um, you know, their projects when they needed a feature wall or a skylight or something. And so, um, yeah, it started off small, you know, just me. And then, um, geez, it's been 25 years now. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So let me ask, uh, jump in here to tie a few things together. So you, UC, University of Cincinnati Architecture Program, you went to the, that DAP um, program there. Did you graduate with a degree in architecture or architecture and fine arts? No, I did not. So I graduated, graduated with a degree in interior design. Interior design, okay. The Bachelor in the Science of Design. Okay. And, yeah, and that's... Um, you know, fortunately, at, at, the, at the school, you can take all kinds of classes. You can take architecture classes, planning. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I took full advantage of that. We actually worked as consultants on the facade for that College of Architecture and Planning at Cincinnati. They had some issues there, and we had the privilege of working on that. It's, it's really nice. that The contemporary building there is pretty nice. The other thing I want to I let our audience know that, you know, I don't, I haven't as often been able to hear the voice of the architect. And that's one of the goals of this show, this, this podcast is to hear the voice of the architect and their perspective, because they're really creating the, the architecture, the need um, for all things related to building. But it, I think this is a very interesting conversation because you, you have this background in architecture, interior design, fine arts, I always knew you as an artistic person, and and yet there's a glass component that I think is going to be compelling to folks. Um, so uh, let's get a little bit further into that. Before that, I want to ask about glass painting. What in the world is glass painting? What is that process like? Sure. So um, it's it's a about a thousand year old technology. Um, so when you see a, a stained glass window in a church that has, you know, figures, the faces of the, uh, the figures are usually painted. Um, you know, stained glass is made up of, you know, small pieces of glass that are held together in a lead came mm -hmm. um, sort of matrix. And each individual piece of glass um, can be painted um, you know, for the robbery, uh, uh, for the robes, for the, you know, the, you're looking at, at your beard right now, thinking about beards of, uh, of the saints, you know, their eyes. So that's, that's an actual paint that's painted onto the glass. It's, um, it's then fired uh, up to like 1140 degrees and that paint fuses um, onto the surface of the glass. I so see. it's permanent, yeah. It's bonded. It's bonded, yeah. And there are, um, you know, glass painting is is a common technique um, even now for glass artists. Um, there are enamels that could be painted on the glass and fired in um, to create sort of that, you know, impression of a stained glass window without the lead. Great, thanks for that. So you went on this architecture journey for 10 years, you were with three different firms and then you started your own place. Um, and what, what led to that? What, what was, was it that desire to merge art and architecture to focus more specifically on, on glass installations and other sculpted type things? Um, what led to you wanting to branch out on your own with your own studio? It's something, John, that I always felt like I wanted to do. Um, you know, especially since the family business um, went in a different direction. Um, I, I felt like, you know, I, um, I sort of grew up, you know, in, a, in the family business. These are entrepreneurs. These are people who are making things happen, you know, for the business. And that idea of, of sort of running my own studio was always just something I had in the back of my mind. Yeah. And so it just, it got to the point where I just felt like it was time, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd done, you know, all the training I felt like I needed to do to sort of realize um, the type of, 
work that I wanted to do. And now I had, you know, all these connections and architecture and people calling me, you know, asking, asking for me to participate in their projects. And so, um, you know, the, the opportunities presented themselves. Great. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that, that resonates with some of the other guests we've had, you know, Max Perlstein, he was on the show. He's heavily involved in, in NGA and other things. And his grandfather started in the glass business, you know, um, Jeff Haber last last podcast, his, his father started in the glass business, you know, more recently, but we've had a number of folks, Brian Fraley and some others who, you know, goes back two, three generations where somebody started something, whether they immigrated over and started straight off the boat or whether they, you know, they, they had to, or post-depression they did. You guys, what's fascinating to me about your grandfather, you said 1913, that would have been the heyday of Cleveland, Ohio. Most, many people in our audience probably wouldn't know, like that was back in the day, right? The twenties and thirties where Cleveland was actually the richest, had more millionaires per capita than any other city. It was the Silicon Valley, if you will. Sorry not to offend any Silicon Valley of the twenties. <laughs> so in churches would have been exploding back then, would they not? Yeah, that's absolutely right, John. There was, um, I think Euclid Avenue was known as Millionaire's Row. It was. Yeah. And um, our studio was um, at the corner, I believe, of Ninth and Superior. Oh, my gosh. That's prime I, real estate. Yeah, back in that time. Ninth and Superior. Yeah. Is that is that where the Greyhound bus station is? That's, that's close. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's right. You go a little further east, you're in Cleveland State University up to East 25th or 30th, you know. So, yeah, yeah that's great. You were, So, you guys were in the – he was – in the heart of it all, really. He really was, yeah. And um, and yeah, he was. He brought over, um, you know, German craftsmen um, to work in the studio. He actually brought his father over, um, my great great grandfather, uh, Joseph, who was a sculptor. Um, and he did he did the sculptures, you know, for for many churches in Cleveland. Fantastic. Yeah, he grew up. Um, and um, well, he was born 1961. This is my great great grandfather. I'm sorry, 1861. Yeah, we're born in 1960. Right. And um, was a professor of art and um, did his apprenticeship on the Cologne Cathedral um, as a sculptor. Wow. And then in um, so my great grandfather came over in 1913, and then I think 1920. He brought my great great grandfather over, and they worked together until his death in 1936. Um, my great grandfather had four sons. My grandfather Paul being the oldest, and then um, Otto, Leo, and John, and um, they all took over the business once my great grandfather passed away. What a great history! So you had probably had this thought that you'd get into the family business and someday you'd you'd be able to assume leadership of that. So it sounds like because that didn't work out, you still had this bug. You grew up around it, you knew about it, you had this rich, rich, rich family history. My gosh, we could talk the rest of the time just about that, but um, that's a fantastic story. And that you know all those names is is wonderful as well. So what is what does your work entail now um, at, at your studio? Uh, so most of the work that, that I'm doing now is um, is either a public art commission or a private commission. And um, oftentimes in glass, sometimes just in metal, um, but uh, usually in glass. Um, probably my most recent project is the best example of um, what, what we're doing here in the studio. Um, this is a, a project in downtown Oakland that was finished last year. Um, it's a, it's a Gensler building at 1100 Broadway, downtown. Ellis Partners developed this uh, new office building um, that was built um, adjacent to a, a historic um, sort of Italianate terracotta style building um, called the Key System Building. Uh, so Gensler, uh, and this is, a, this is downtown Oakland, so there's a public art requirement for new development downtown. Is that, that's an Oakland city standard? That's right. 
Yeah, it's an Oakland City uh, ordinance. So there's a certain percentage of every construction project that has to include public art? That's right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And um, so Gessler had designated a band of the uh, storefront for um, the, the public art portion of the project. They wanted the public art to be integrated, you know, into the building. There really was no room sort of on the sidewalk, you know, surrounding the building for any kind of sculpture or anything like that. And so the approach was to integrate the public art. And um, so this is a competition. Um, I was approached by the art consultant on the project and won the competition. And then worked, geez, for almost a year with Gensler and the general contractors, uh, Hathaway Dinwiddie and the Blazing Sub, Walters and Wolf, to develop the the public art, you know, at the upper level of the storefront. So originally the, the project was to be a, the public art was to be a rain screen that would hang in front of, of the storefront. And um, Gensler had envisioned uh, some sort of a kiln formed, or I'm sorry, cast glass that would hang somehow off of the, basically the third floor of the building. And so, um, when I got involved, um, we had to basically solve, you know, the design of the rain screen. You know, how is this thing structurally going to work? Yeah. And then, you know, and support the glass. And so we went through several iterations, um, you know, using my structural engineer at the time, um, developing the carriage, basically, that would hang off the slab, the edge of the slab, and then support the glass. Well, by the time we got through that process, that those carriages were going to double the budget for the public art. Mm. It just was not it was not viable. And so I had a conversation with um, uh, with the developer about you know why not integrate our art glass into the storefront itself. I mean it's. It's the glasses material that you're using, you know, we're using glass. It really is um, um, viable, I, I, I thought. And he's, he pushed back and said, you know, our Title 24, our energy code for energy requirements are so tight. We just don't, we never really thought that that was a possibility. And so they went back and um, ran the numbers using just clear half inch thick low iron glass. Mm-hmm which is what we used for our art installation. And it just squeaked by. And so we um, you know, went back to the drawing board and came up with a way of integrating this kiln-formed half-inch thick glass into the storefront. Were you working with Walters and Wolf closely at this point to integrate it into their system or was it still, was it a rain screen again? No, we were working closely with Walters and Wolf. Yeah. Yeah, they were That's their their Fremont office. That's right. That's right. And um you know and I and I it took a it took a little while for for us to win them over. I think that they they weren't really crazy about the idea of us messing around, you know, with the storefront dis, um system. Yeah. And um and it I think it took what it, what it really took, John, was showing them in those samples and maquettes and mock-ups that our glass really does work like, you know, window glass, mm-hmm. vision glass, and it can fit into, you know, a system with some modifications. Was that, it? was it gasketed or silicon glazed? It's silicon glazed. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so what we ended up doing is coming up with a, um, they came up actually with this idea of um, welding a steel angle, basically mid-span of this 22 foot high storefront mm-hmm. that would support the weight of the glass. And it turns out, you know, our glass was much lighter than the cast glass that was originally proposed. Cast glass is, you know, two, three inches thick, has to be. Yeah, Ours yeah. is, you know, half inch thick. And then um, we came up with a um, 
you know, our, our glass is, is, uh, has relief to it. It's, it's based on the geometry of an acorn cap. So if you imagine an acorn cap, so if you imagine the top of an acorn and those little leaflets, those bracts are called, you know, have some, you know, relief to them. Well, our glass has relief kind of like the acorn cap. Okay. So our glass at its, um, is, is about two inches thick um, at its at the at the apex on both sides, and so it's sort of a almost like an accordion shape to the glass, if I could describe it that way. And so we had to create some mullions behind the glass that follow that accordion shape and would support the edges of the glass, mm-hmm. right, to take care of the wind loads. And so when we first proposed this idea. <laughs> Walters and Wolf is like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, we've got a, you know, snapback system that we're used to using. So I said, you know, hang on, hang with me here. I think we can do this. Yeah. And so we, we came up with a way to, um, out of one and a half inch thick aluminum plate, water jet cut to the profile of the glass, attach that to the top and bottom of, you know, the system. And, um, and then, yeah, we had a structural silicone joints on the backside, weather seal on the front side, and, and there you are. You know, I, I can just imagine people having started this podcast thinking, what, how in the world are we going to get to glass from church interiors? This is such a fascinating conversation because this is the language and jargon of that, not just architecture, but the custom facade world. And you mentioned one of your hot points um, in the professional world was integrating art and architecture as a team. Is this an example of that or, and is there more to that? Yeah, this is, this is definitely an example. Um, So I, you know, in order for me to do what I do, I have to rely on so many incredibly talented people. Um, there's uh, first and foremost is Dorothy Lenahan of Lenahan Architectural Glass in Oakland. Okay. And Dorothy owns a, an art glass studio. Um, she's an artist also. Um, but she's, um, she's really good at interpreting artists' work um, into glass. And sometimes these are artists who are painters, you know, um, who's, who have never worked in glass. Mm-hmm. Um, so she and I have worked closely for 25 years um, on almost all of my projects. Mm-hmm. And so Dorothy, um, Dorothy came up with the way of creating this, um, this sort of undulating glass. It's like, how do you take a flat piece of glass, turn it into this, this undulating accordion pattern? And um, how, do, how the heck do you do that, you know? Yeah, she's she's the one who problem solves, you know, the the process as a glass fabricator. As a glass fabricator, so you you need to have a lot of collaborative. As you're talking, I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, the collaboration. You're collaborating with the owner, the developer, the city, right? They have to have certain skin in the game. Is oh yeah, not a glazing subcontractor who's going to be pretty pretty. Strong as it relates to well, how do I state my scope of work? Now I got to incorporate this art glass in it. The contractor, the architect of record, that is that is a tremendous amount of collaboration. How do you juggle all that? Yeah, I mean, you just hit it on the head. Um, you know, it's just open communication. You know, you um, um, and and it's always um, you have to do. You have to do work that proves your theories to sort of bring people along, right? And so when we first started this, Dorothy, we, Dorothy and I thought, well, we really want this glass needs to have a lot of depth and texture to it. And so we think it needs to be about, you know, four inches thick at the high point. And so let's, let's you know, let's try that. So we did a sample and it was just a mess, you know, the glass. Um, sort of lost all of its definition. They're like, okay, let's try two inches, one inch. And, you know, you, you sort of by trial and error, figure out what, what works best. 
And so we show that sample. So two inches works great. We show that sample to the developer and they go, oh, okay, I see. So you've got this rendering where you've shown me on paper what you're trying to do. You have this geometry related to an acorn cap that you've developed. Now we're starting to see the materiality of this and it's, we're started getting a hint of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, from there, then we developed, you know, a half size mock-up, um, you know, a six foot high panel. A single light? Uh, a single light. Yeah. And then we did a second one. And then of course you've got to deal with, um, you know, some safety considerations. Yeah. Right? So we've got half inch thick glass that's above the sidewalk. Um, so, you know, <laughs> along the way, there are problems that you have to solve. And so um, Dorothy, again, um, comes up with this great idea to use a, uh, it's called a PPF film, a paint protection film that you would use on uh, an automobile to protect the paint. So, um, you know, folks yeah. with very nice cars, you know, want to protect the, the finish of their Ferrari. And so this film, you know, can form, conform to all the double curves, um, you know, the shapes of an automobile. Um, and turns out it, it holds our glass together when it's broken. Interesting. So yeah, we, we did a, um, an impact test, sort of an informal impact test to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the idea was, you know, this is an urban setting. What happens if someone throws a rock at this glass? Yeah. And so we figured out, okay, um, with a kettlebell, a kettleball, I'm sorry, um, you know what you use for, for training? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, connect that to a rope and swing that into the glass with the film on it. And, you know, from a certain distance, you could calculate, you know, what's the velocity of this kettlebell and how does that equate to a one-pound rock being thrown from a certain distance? So did the math and figured out, you know, something that's equivalent to somebody standing 60 feet away mm-hmm. trying to rock at the glass. So they did the test. The glass held together beautifully. And, um, you know, by proving the concept, you know, we got the city on board. Yeah. We got the architects on board. We got the owners on board. Who Who is your actual client? Is it the city? Is it the architect? Is it the GC? To whom do you submit your proposal and who, who selects that? Um, it's very complicated because you're, you're, you're in a niche within a niche and then you're having to collaborate with the installers and the fabricators, but who's your actual contract with? It's with the developer. The developer. Yeah, Ellis Partners. Ellis yeah. Partners. Okay. That's good. And um, we actually working with the, like I know some of those folks at Walters and Will Kendall Phillips, Nick Cassell, d- different people. I mean, they're they're a customer of mine. More in the Seattle area, they've got multiple groups. But we actually working with the designers there at Walters and Wool for that project team on how to incorporate this profile cut to the mullion to install the glass and all that. We did, yeah. We had a couple of meetings in their offices um, to to talk that through. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were and they were great. You know, I I found John that whenever you sort of get into um, the level of the employee, the the level of a company where the employees are have their hands on the work, they yeah. really love to be involved with this sort of specialty stuff. Yeah, like the glazers are like, bring this on. You know, this looks really cool. How are we going to lift this three hundred pound piece of glass? We don't know. Let's figure it out. How did how did they lift it? Did they use glass cups or did they have to do it another way? They use glass cups, but they use the glass cups you use on curved glass. Yeah. You know, those big floppy ones. Yeah, you'd have to because you've got these variegations in the surface. Exactly. Where, yeah. Where, where do you derive where do you derive the inspiration for the pattern? In this case, it was the cap of an acorn. Did, did the did the location, the Italianate architecture, the adjacent building, your own internal vision, what drove that and what drives other passion or vision toward what the what the formation of these forms look like? 
Yeah, that's a great question, John. Um, so um, whenever I approach a project like this one, um, I'm, I'm starting off looking for, for some connections between um, aspects that are unique about this place that I'm working in. So here we are downtown Oakland. Um, Oakland, named after oak trees, the coastal live oak, um, seemed like a natural starting point. You know, this area, this part of the East Bay was covered with these live oak trees. These are majestic evergreen trees. Mm. There's really now just like one or two left in downtown Oakland. There's one very close to the site near the city hall. Mm -hmm. So, so I sort of started there and, um, I've always had sort of a fascination, fascination with geometry and, um, I could recognize in the acorn cap, there was some regularity there, mm -hmm. you know, that was just interesting to me. Um, and so I just did a sort of like a, just a graphic analysis, like photograph of the acorn. Let's draw some lines in AutoCAD. Let's follow the, you know, the spiral curvature of this acorn cap. And what are we going to find? And I found a, a proportion where these bracts, these leaflets grow in a pretty regular proportion. Um, so, you know, they get smaller, um, you know, in, as you get closer to the actual nut itself. So that analysis, I, I through that analysis, I found this proportion of 1.0625. From, from point to point? Yeah, from, yeah, from point to point, exactly. That's fantastic. I love this stuff, but I'll, I'll be real didactic if we start getting into numbers because I love <laughs> that repetition. That is so cool. Like, has anybody ever discovered that or found that before? Oh, I'm sure someone has, John. I have no idea. Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea. Okay, so anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, that's all right. So, so now, Ty, so another aspect of this site is this old Italian eighth building called the key system building. Mm -hmm. And the key system was the, the old transit system for the East Bay. So the streetcars um, were owned by the key system. Um, and so they ran, you know, through Oakland, Berkeley, um, actually over the Bay Bridge um, into the 60s. So the key system, um, back in the day, they had these tokens, there's one here, um, that you would buy, you know, and then drop that into the streetcar as you got on board, right? Mm -hmm. So the key system, the K there, I don't know if you can see that or not. Mm -hmm. So this little token has this pattern, this sort of a spiral pattern of the, an acorn cap. Interesting. Actually in the token, yeah. That's fantastic. So I did a, a little bit, that same analysis of the, of the geometry of this, this guy. And that same proportion is there. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, okay. So now I've got, you know, I've got something to start with. Yeah. Right. So now I've got to work with the building and the building has a, you know, a structural grid that I've got to work with. I got to divide my, my glass panels into a grid and that should work with the building grid. And so I took a, you know, I guess the building grid is like 15 feet is where the columns are located. And, you know, you divide that down. Well, we've got, I've got to get it down to under five feet because the kiln is not big enough to handle yeah. it. So it turns out that Dorothy has to get a new kiln anyhow, because okay. the glass needs to be 11 foot, three inches tall. Her kiln's 10 feet. <laughs> so she told me, look, we can get a kiln but um, I'm going to limit the size of this one to 12 by five. So you got to work. Okay. With that. And so taking that proportion system, I divided the 15 feet into a series of vertical lines that mm -hmm. work on that proportion system. I see. And then did the same thing with the diag with diagonal lines at 45 degrees. And that, and that started talking to me that little, that pattern. Um, it started to look like something and then developing that further, I started sort of bisecting the intersections of the diagonals and the verticals 
And that started to develop this triangular pattern. And then as I, I broke it down further and further, I ended up with a pattern that was very much similar to an acorn cap mm-hmm. and its pattern. And, and so with that, using that proportion system. So now I've got a, a graphic pattern. So I want, this needs to be three dimensions because this glass, you know, you, you can paint lines on it, create a graphic pattern. That's one way to do it. I wanted something more dynamic that would work with the light, um, you know, it's available. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted some three dimensions. So we start, I started taking those intersections and moving them, you know, in and out um, to create, this is, I'm using SketchUp at this point to design okay. and, and move those points in and out, but, you know, do it in a way that, that uses that proportion system. And so where the, the pattern's the tightest, I've got the most depth, the two inches that we were talking about, and where the pattern is most expansive, I have very little depth. Um, and that created this sort of a wave-like pattern mm-hmm. the side of the building. So that's, that's kind of how that developed. Dan, Dan, how many square feet approximately is that installation? I think it's about 1,800 square feet. 1,800 square feet. You mentioned beforehand <clears throat> when we were speaking for the, the this session that you were going to be part of an exhibition in Venice, Italy. And you, is this what you're going to utilize as part of the ex, as your exhibition? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we're, going to, we're shipping actually next week, one of those panels over to Italy. Um, and then there'll be a, I've got a, a wall in a building um, where we'll have a big mural. I and see. Then a video monitor with a video, sort of the process. And d- does that, you know, as I'm listening to your study on the geometry of the acorn cap and then the token and how that integrates to the history of Oakland, you know, it almost sounds like a, a fascinating mini book where you would, you would show the formation of the sketches. Is that part of the exhibition or is it just purely centered on the, the look of the glass and the formation of the glass? No, so we're going to do, so we'll have about a three minute video that um, kind of does uh, what you're talking about with a book. Mm-hmm. So it's just, um, you know, incorporating freehand sketches and some photos of samples and Great. yeah, that s- sort of show the evolution, but do it in a, you know, sort of a, you know, quick and simple way. So the tools you're using, you mentioned SketchUp and AutoCAD. Is, is that primarily what you're using? Do you use any other computer-aided design tools like Rhino or anything like that? Yeah, so we use Rhino, um, SketchUp, AutoCAD, Photoshop, um, you know, Illustrator. Uh-huh. But in that, that particular project, that was mostly SketchUp. I have used Rhino. Um, I use Rhino pretty extensively for a, a steel tubular sculpture I did at VMware down in Palo Alto. Yeah, I'm familiar with them. Yeah. So I had a, a public art project for them that involved no glass. Um, this was strictly a, a stainless steel tubular sculpture that sits on a sculpture plaza at the entrance to their headquarters. I love metals too. And you mentioned you do metals and glass. We'll, we'll pro- unless we have more time here, we'll probably have to defer that to a different show because the metals portion is fascinating as well. I, I have a question. Of course, if we only do video, the audience, we don't do video. The audience won't see it. I'm unrolling Bumwad. Do you still use this? Do you still use Bumwad? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Of course. You can hear it. Love it. I get my pen out in my left hand, and I start sketching. Some of the best curtain wall and glass designs in the world take place on the back of a napkin or on a piece of Bumwad like that. that isn't that still the case for you? Less and less, but because um, mostly, you know, we're talking and, and guys are designing on screen for me or for us. Um, but I still like in a meeting, you know, to have a roll of bum mud in the middle of the table. And yeah. if somebody needs to start sketching with a, with a felt tip pen, they can do that, you know. I love it. I love it. Good stuff. Talk to me more about integrating. If you have something else to share, do you have any other comments or things that you think would be pertinent for for our audience to hear about integrating art and architecture as a team. Do you feel like you, you have communicated that by example in this job or is there really something else there's an essence that you're trying to get to? 
Well, I think it's it's really nice when the artists can get involved in the project early on, right? So the really the earlier the better. Um, I that you know you find that um, you know when you get called in at the very end, and, and this wasn't the case with the project I just described. You know your your options become more limited. You know the as far as what tools the artists can use. Sure. You know, so the more, you know, the earlier I can get involved uh, or an artist can get involved, uh, also the better opportunity for the work to be integrated more seamlessly, you know, into the building. Yeah, this is true with every collaborative work, isn't it? I mean, same with engineering. We, they say, when's the best time to involve the structural engineer in the facade as early as possible, early and often. Well, what about scope? Well, let us make that decision. You know, a, a good structural engineer or consultant can look at something and go, yeah, that mullion profile is not going to work. You need to do something else, not even have to charge any time to it, but they know they're going to be collaborating on the project at some point. So early and often sure makes sense. Um, and, and most of us aren't thinking about integrating the artist because it's, this is more, maybe it's an East Coast thing too, but I know this is true in Seattle and it's true in Oakland and probably Bay Area where a certain percentage of jobs are dedicated to public art, which, which has an architecture component, right? Yeah, very, yeah, often. And so, um, you know, sometimes the public art is a freestanding piece, you know, in a plaza. But we, I see more and more, you know, the work is being integrated into the, the building skin, like parking garages, you know, how many parking garages have you seen published that integrate, you know, artists' work? You know, in the past, very few, but more and more, yeah, like uh, Zaner, um, a Zaner company in uh, Kansas, like you, you, Kansas City, you may know them. They, they do yeah. some tremendous metal work. And uh, Miami has an ordinance about parking garages, and there's just some tremendous sculpted facades in the city of Miami to meet their ordinance requirements and just some, some beautiful looks. Yeah, I know. And, and it's, um, it's, it's an opportunity to, you know, create something that's unique for those cities and towns. Yeah. You know, those, you know, <laughs> there's one, in, there's a parking garage in Berkeley um, that incorporates LED lighting and um, some very simple metal fins that, um, that at night, it, it's right across the street from uh, a couple of theaters. So, you know, you think about, you know, the beautifully ornate theaters of old days and the incredible plaster work and gold leaf and all that stuff. Well, you know, the theaters in Berkeley are fairly new, but you look across the street and that instead of being, in, you know, the, the entertainment between shows being inside the building, it's really outside the building on this parking garage across the street. It's just such like a concept. Do you, do you think that the incorporation of art um, into the facade is um, because of spatial constraints in urban environments or because the facade is such a visual aesthetic to, to the building and people are looking at it anyway or a combination of that and other things? Um, yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's sort of situational. You know, I mean, some some buildings will step back and have, you know, an entry that allows for some artwork to be placed. Mm -hmm. You know, this one, the the building comes right up to the property line, you know, on on the two sides of, uh, you know, 12th and, and Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've seen I've seen canopies um, treated with, you know, artistic treatments. That's that's also another opportunity. Um, yeah, have you done any canopies? Um, I've not done any canopies, no, but I've, I've done, I've, I think I've done three or four different projects where my work is integrated into the building skin. Mm -hmm. Um, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music is another one. Um, there's a project in Fremont for the Palo Alto Medical Foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, in that case, that was a we created some insulated glass units 
where we adhered using silicone, that same glass you use in stained glass, okay. adhered that glass to the inside faces, surface two and three of the insulating glass units, and then it just gets dropped right into you know, the framing system. Is that something Dorothy did with you? Yes. Yes. Wow. So she's got that capability as well. Yep. Oh yeah. Sounds pretty sounds pretty resilient. She sound they sound like quite an organization. Yeah, very small. Um small and small and nimble, very smart. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, I, I gotta I gotta segue or digress, however it'll go. But the audience may think we're like fast friends for years and years and years. But in fact, we do have a history and I, there, there's a reason I'm bringing this up now. So um, the last time I saw Dan was in 1978. That was the day we graduated from West Geauga High School. Shout out to the Wolverines uh, in Chesterland, Ohio, from which have come quite a few pretty successful people um, in that class of 78. And I'm trying to remember how did how did we reconnect? I know I reconnected when I was in the Bay Area a couple of years ago. It was before COVID. I can't remember if I saw something from you on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn. Did you did you reach out to me first or did I reach out to you? Do you remember? John, I don't yeah, I'm not sure who reached out first, but I know it was definitely over social media, and I'm pretty sure it was Instagram. I think so. That's one of the terrific things about social media. You know, it certainly has its pros and cons, but here I am, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I always knew Dan as a thoughtful, artistic, um, athletic guy. We ran cross country together for one year. And then I think he went and played soccer or. Well, ran track. Did you run track? Yeah, we ran track. Yeah. yeah. Middle distance. 800. Yeah. That's right. We did some relays probably together, eight, two mile, eight, 800, eight, four by 800 at Solon or West G. So we ran track. And then you, what other, what sport did you play senior year? I did go to, I did go to the soccer team, our very first varsity soccer team. Yeah. So that was uh, a sanctioned sport then in, at that time. Yeah, that's right. I didn't, I didn't have the dedication to cross country running like you did, John. <laughs> you didn't have the insanity gene. <laughs> Or you loved it. You didn't like. You didn't want to be the king of pain all the time, right? Oh uh, no, <laughs> no. But you were fast. So anyway, what's interesting about this to me is that forty some years elapse, and I I told my wife the other night I was sitting on the screen in porch. I said, I can't believe what a selfish, self-absorbed numbskull I was. That I did. She just chuckled. She said, like I love that. I said, you know, here here Dan. We've got all these things in common now vocationally. I see his installation on social media. You're working with a customer of mine, Walters and Wolf. You're working in an architecture mode. You're working in the Bay Area. Incredible. It, it's just been marvelous. It, basically, we skipped 40 some years and here we are on a podcast together. So hopefully somebody will find that interesting and maybe inspiring to reconnect with somebody. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I didn't I had no idea about your background when you started talking about um stained glass. We could talk about that too. Uh, we've actually done engineering on stained glass installations at Yale, leaded oh. caming drawings. We oh. worked with, with Peter Rolfs and Rolfs Studio in New York. Um, oh. We haven't done some for a while, but many people may not know that there's actually, depending on the size of the stained glass and the number of components, there's actually a structural a structural analysis to the leaded came shapes, the H shapes and the the semicircular shapes with the chases in them. And my partner did a lot of that detailing. We didn't do the artwork, but we mimicked whether it was over insulated glass or whether it was part of another stained glass installation. We did those drawings early on and a fair amount of structural engineering. So again, that's another connection point. God, John, that's incredible. I didn't even know that structural engineers get involved with stained glass. It's rare because, you know, you, you know, as an artisan, the size of the installation, but we've, they don't often dictate that requirement. But, you know, when we were working with a guy named Jack Doyle, who was a legend at PPG and started a company called Curtain Walls and Windows out of Hartford, Connecticut, he was like an uncle to me vocationally. Um, he's passed away now quite a number of years ago, but he had a connection with Yale and Yale has tremendous historical building requirements and you have to yeah. mimic 
So they've replaced a lot of these old leaded cam windows with, with either insulated glass with leaded cam windows over it or some other form. And some of them were so large that we actually had to run the leaded cam profile like a large shape through and have connection details at the end. And then all the smaller shapes would come into that. So it was very intricate. And you wow. know, looking at the elastic properties of lead or lead and aluminum, just fun stuff. Oh, that's fantastic. I'd love to see those drawings someday. Yeah, we'll have to pull them out of the archives. Uh, you mentioned also uh, learning about innovations in building skin design. Um, perhaps you were at a facade uh, I think it's the Architects newspaper, Facade Plus, I, you know, with Diana and Susan and them. You've been to that in LA. You talked about that being an interesting space. Have you, have you learned stuff from those seminars? Oh, my gosh. I, I look forward to that seminar every year. Do you? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, the, um, just, there's always some, something innovative that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if... Did you, you know, this last one was online, of course, uh, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but um, I think it was last year or the two years ago, MVRDV's Crystal House facade was featured. Okay. You remember that? There was a, um, a building, I believe, in, in Holland where they sort of replicated brick in glass. So glass bricks were assembled as the storefront for this Hermes, um, you know, retail outfit. And um, geez, I mean, that, you know, year, I think it took them years to develop these glass bricks and, mm -hmm. and their connection method. Um, that was incredible. Uh, just this last year, um, Tom Linscombe was featuring some work that he's doing in LA um, I think it's called the fantastic. It's this, a modern approach to a billboard where they created these steel structures that were actually built by a submarine manufacturing company, again, in Holland. Well, yeah, they're the uh, people assembled on site. Yeah. It's prefabricated units. I mean, they do. And then they, they feature the space needle and the, you know, reglazing of the space needle and then replacing the floor with the glass floor. They're, yeah, every year um, I feel like I've I've learned. I've been to a master's class. Yeah, I think that's probably the case, Dan. I don't. I can't remember the last facades plus conference I was at in LA. I know it was I was at a facade tectonics. Are you familiar with the facade tectonics organization? No, no, I'm not. Yeah, look them up online too. You know, in some ways they compete, but the facade tectonics is more of a think tank, they're more committed to research and development and advancement of facade technologies. And um, Facades Plus is part of Architects newspaper. Um, shout out to Diana Darling and, and her, her team. It's a great, very good organization. They were really the, the pioneers in setting up these conferences. Uh -huh. And uh, they've done a great job. I think he would make a terrific presenter there. I've, I've seen some architects that presented as keynotes and others. Um, I, I think that uh, your installation and the discovery on this project, in fact, would be a really valuable one. They ought to think about that. Yeah, it would be fun. Yeah, it would be fun. So um, one other question on the technical side of this work, how do you go about proposing on this work? Does, do, do they, are, are they publicly announced or if it's private work, does the developer just come to you or the architect comes to you through the developer? Is it mostly inbound coming to you because of your reputation and connections or is there another public element to like an RFP? Um, so most of my work is, is sort of the former of what you described. Um, so um, the work is the public art is for private development. And so it's the private developer who um, is responsible for, you know, providing the work. There are um, certainly public entities that send out RFPs, you know, and RFQs uh, nationally. And um, I apply for those, you know, often. Um, and then that's, that's sort of a different game, you know, altogether. So yeah. there is a national, have you ever worked internationally? 
Um, I have one project in London um, okay. that was for um, a private commission uh, that was for Swiss Re uh, Capital Partners. Did that okay. years ago. Um, but yeah, then, then that's the other side of what I do. You know, private. I do private commissions as well. You okay. Know. Yeah. Glass and glass and metal. And when you're working in metal, which we haven't talked much about, are you doing the same thing like as you do with Dorothy and others, where you you integrate like a, somebody who has a shop or metal works shop, welders, benders, etc. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, I have several several metal workers I work with. Um, depending on the scale of the project. Um, uh, some finishers, metal finishers who do patina work. Um, uh, yeah, it just, it really, it's sort of situational. So that project for VMware was done by a metal fabricator, WIP Mechanical, who specializes in um, pipe work for wineries and dairies. Interesting. Yeah, so they they do a great job of welding, you know, pipe end to end, which has to be, you know, done just the right way so no bacteria develops on the weld. Mm -hmm. um, so this was a, a project. My my design was all made out of a five inch uh, stainless steel tube, and uh, so they had bending done in L.A. and then shipped back up and did the welding and finishing. Yeah. Then I've got another fabricator in Oakland who is really good at um, patina work, also does um, metal fabrication. So, you know, send the, send the shapes out for water jet cutting and do the welding. And then we insert some glass elements. Um, so, yeah, just depends on what we're doing. Nice. You know, there's a, I don't know if you knew him or know him, but um, it's been years since I've connected, but one of the senior project managers at Walters and Wolf in Fremont was a guy named Steve Foss, and he actually had a degree in fine arts, and he actually had a oh. large sculpt studio, and that's what he loved. In fact, he was one of the few guys I ever met who absolutely loved hollow metal doors and hardware because of the artistry of the rail and style and all of the things that could go together there. But he, he, I think he had actually retired down for a while to devote himself to doing sculpting and large metal sculpting and just terrific. This industry attracts a lot of folks from a lot of different backgrounds. Yes, it does. Yep. Yeah. So. It's, uh, I was just listening to uh, Chris French, who owns Chris French Metals in Oakland. He started off as an artist um, in school and, you know, for one reason or the other, got involved in a metal shop. And now he has one of the high end, most premium high end metal shops here in the Bay Area. Yeah, that makes it's a, sense. It's, yeah, it's a story that I hear over and over. Dan, do you have any advice for young people, any young architects? I mean, you can only speak to probably your experience with your family and, you know, we're, we're, we're parents of millennials. And any advice to young people entering the architecture field or construction field or just the field in general on, on just how to go about that? Um, any inputs? Gosh, I'd say, um, you know, I mean, their world is so different than ours, John, you know. Um, but I think I think working with a master, if you could make that happen, or several masters of your craft, um, of your profession, and just, you know, see how they do things. You know, that, that's kind of how, how I learned. Um, I was fortunate, fortunate enough to work with some pretty amazing people. Um, and then, you know, from there, you, you sort of develop your own point of view. But um, in those early days, I'd say, work with a master, get out and travel, mm -hmm. you know, get out and see the world. Um, you know, understand that there's more out there than what you've grown up with. Mm -hmm. yeah, you you know? certainly had, had an opportunity to do that with working in Germany and, and such. Yeah, working in Germany, working in traveling through Asia um, when I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, good. What do you like to do for hobby or recreation? Anything or is it all work? <laughs> no, my wife wouldn't let me do that. So, uh, yeah. So my, um, my biggest distraction is golf right now. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. When did you take up golf? I took it up 
uh, probably about 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah. I got really into it and then I dropped out of it when my kids were growing up and now I'm, I've gotten back into it. Yeah. How often do you play? Oh, not, not often enough. Um, you know, maybe once a month or so, but I'm, I'm out here. I've got a little practice uh, area set up outside the studio. That's great. And I'm out there, you know, almost every day. Swinging an iron, swing, putting, practicing. Yep. Yeah. Does your wife does your wife play golf as well? No, she doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. No. Our she... last guest, Jeff Haber with W and W, he's like, Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna pick up the sticks again. And I said, Are you gonna take lessons? He said, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> golf is I don't care how good you think you are or what golf is one of those things. You gotta take a lesson for golf. It's it's such a hard game, John. You so you play, it sounds like. You know what, my wife so kind. She, and she, there's a gentleman, a friend of mine in Florida and, and uh, he's a great golfer. You know, he's in his mid to late sixties. He's a 74, 72, 74, 76 golfer. He's just a natural. I I took it up. She got me four lessons. It didn't, it didn't take that much to just get some basics, but had I not, I would be completely lost. And I, I'm very sporadic with it, but it is quite a game. It's just that if your driver's on, your iron's not. If your iron's on, your putting is not. And to have all three of them align at once is not typical. No, it never happens. <laughs> it's such a such a hard game. Yeah, unless but, you're a uh, pro. There's, there's also something about it that draws you back. Yeah. Anything else? So your your distraction now is golf. You like golf? Anything else? Uh, so I've been doing. Um, Spartan races and Tough Mudder races over the last five or six years. Really? Yeah. Um, I've got a group of friends um, who are really into it, and they drag me along, the old guy. Um, but I haven't, you know, I haven't done that in the last year, obviously, because of COVID. Yeah. Um, we did one just, you know, I think, February, just before everything shut down. Um, so, yeah, that's that's fun. It's a great challenge. Jeez. I'm not sure how many more of them I have left in me, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, well, kudos to you. I, I've never done one of those. They look tough throwing spears and jumping over fire pits and, yeah, exactly. yeah, under barbed wire. Dan, do you have any any questions for me, any any other comments to the audience before we adjourn here and, and sign off, at least for this time? Um, well, John, just, this has been such a pleasure. It feels like a tease. I can't wait to, you know, spend more time with you. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. It's, um, it's been a pleasure. It's a great pleasure to have you on. And, you know, I've got some terrific customers, um, in the Bay area, um, California in general. And, uh, I'm usually out there at least once a year again, except for COVID. So the next time, I'm heading out to Bay Area, um, San Francisco, Livermore, the whole region. Um, I'll, I'll give you a call, see if there's some way we can connect. Please do. That would be great. Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, he's Dan Winterick. I'm John Wheaton. This is the Creating Structure podcast. We are signing off, and we'll look forward to speaking to you the next time. Dan, thanks again, and uh, we are done for today. <laughs>